good. Ah, I feel better. Um, in the early hours of March 18th, 1990, um, vehicle pulls up to the side of entrance of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men get out um, in police uniforms. They push the museum buzzer, and they stated they were responding to a disturbance, and they requested to be let in. Well, the guard on, on duty broke protocol uh, and allowed them through the employee entrance. And at the officer's request, he stepped away from the watch desk. He was questioned. And then he and the second security guard were placed under arrest because these police officers were obviously not the real ones. And they handcuffed him, tied him up in the basement of that museum. And some of the most expensive works of art that had been hanging there for 100 years, 13 of the most irreplaceable works of art were gone 81 minutes later. And rather than being caught with a five-foot canvas, the thieves would cut out uh, the Rembrandt's uh, Christ of the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, um, this story that um, Bob was referencing. They stole Edward Manet's Chez Tortoni and Vermeer's The Concert, which is only one of 34 confirmed Vermeer's in existence. And y'all, this was the single largest property theft in the world, and it was valued at $500 million. Gone in 81 minutes. And each of those frames remain where they were, open, empty, in a hope of the artwork's safe return. The FBI, the museum, the U.S. attorney, um, art hunt. <laughs> but when you think about it, of these works of art, there's only a 5% chance that these works of art will ever be recovered. If you go to the next slide, you can see how it looks today. Just a bunch of empty frames, wishing, waiting to be um, having their, these arts, works of art, returned to them. And there's probably little or no chance that that's even going to happen. Can you imagine if you were right there in the museum as a curator or even a lover of art, and maybe you were just even looking at it, and this is just staggering, right? These are masterpieces that are, in a sense, irreplaceable. Well, God made even a more irreplaceable masterpiece, and that was creation. And it was very good, pronounced in Genesis 1. And yet the enemy tricked our first parents, just like he tricked those security guards. Sin hijacked the world and uh, crudely cut out his glorious image out of the creation that he created just like those thieves cut out those frames. True beauty and goodness were ruined. The masterpiece of creation seemed ruined forever. It seemed like 0% chance it was going to be restored. And Paul paints a picture of ruined creation very similar, if you go to the next slide, to Christ in the storm of the Sea of Galilee. He paints a bleak picture of what it would be like if we looked head on and we looked at creation and the lostness and the ruinedness of it. And it's like if we were on that boat and we only had two options, to drown and die or to go and look in the face of Jesus and say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Save us and put all of your hopes 
unto Jesus. Very similar to this. We see Rembrandt was a master storyteller because uh, he was known as a master, but also he was known as, a, uh, as much as a, a storyteller as he was a master painter. Sometimes he wanted to tell as much as he could about the narrative into the story. And if you look at it, he actually paints himself in um, into certain scenes. And you'll see somebody looking somewhat back, clinging onto a rope, and I think that's him. Um, but he's looking out to us. And he's not putting himself in there because he wants, he's just self-centered. He just wants to be in every single picture. But he wants to draw us in. It's a picture that pictures the plight of human beings. And we only have two options. To be in a ruined creation to our debts or being saved from a God who brings life. These are the two options that we see as we see and look at some of these lost paintings that unlike this story of the Gardner Museum, God stepped into human history to redeem the masterpiece that was lost. But we're going to also see the effect of not only restoring creation, but also realizing it and making even more a place of more beauty and more goodness and truth and love even more than we can ever even imagine. And then also God would want to use us. And so it's very similar to kind of re-emphasizing what Doug Meikle, our guest speaker, spoke about last um, week, um, just about how salvation does not start with just Jesus died and rose again, but it starts all the way back in Genesis 1 in creation where salvation starts and begins and ends in the garden, that we are created in the image of God. We were, in a sense, relational. We were called uh, to a relationship with God. And the first thing that God said that was not good, after saying everything was good, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's where the helper, the woman, was created and then later, because of the sa- of satanic lies, the enemy tricked our first parents into believing a lie, which led to the ruining of the image of God in all things, of, it, of our being and also in our doing. And that led to um, the salvation story that we see. So take a look at um, Revel- uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. And we're going to just like Rembrandt in the Christ in the storm, is he's drawing, Paul is drawing us in into this grand story, starting with the, the masterpiece of God ruined. Look with me in verse one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we just talked about this, about how Paul paints a really bleak picture. He says that sin has touched us on every single level unmanageable. On the outside, we looked alive, but inwardly we were dead. It is as if he was picturing us already interred in our graves, never to be raised up again. 
And as he says in verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. He's doing that to to fully convey to us that, hey, we didn't just have Houston, we didn't have a problem. We had a major issue in which God and his presence and, and we were ruptured of that relationship. We have suffered a divine catastrophic rupture and that sin and its effects was total. And also, he says, in which you once walked. And so Paul is doing this a lot, but he is just drawing a sharp contrast between their sinful past and their present standing uh, now in Christ. And most of us gloss over this, but we forget to realize what, when was the last time you knew or thought you were going to die? And that's the kind of feeling and the sense of lostness that Paul is drawing us back into. You and I were like on that boat on Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, yet we were completely lost if not for Jesus. Can you remember that time, if there was a time in which you thought you were dead and you were just on the very brink of death? Paul identifies and says, he draws us in and says, you were not only sinking, you were already down on the ground, in the ocean, dead. Paul identifies these three forms of evil influence. He talks about the world, the devil, and the flesh. Paul first is saying that they've been enslaved by the world. The world, world talks about following the course of this world, and it marks uh, the marks of the first century world in which they were following um, the, the gods of materialism, of sex, of uh, hyper-individualism, of nihilism, of um, polytheism, and they were just all into their, what their society prized. And we also have been uh, completely overpowered by these society's doctrines, and we were destined to follow the course of this world which leads to spiritual death. The second uh, hostile influence is the enemy, which is the devil, and um, we not only have an enemy that we can see, which would be um, pretty obvious, but we also have an enemy that we don't see. And look at what the scripture says. He calls it the prince of the power of the air. We know that Ephesians talks more about spiritual principalities more than any other epistles. And so he's almost giving us an inside look onto this unseen spiritual realm. He's also referred to us in chapter 4, verse 27, and chapter 6, verse 11, as the devil or the evil one. And he here is called a prince, which is a term given and designated for like a political chief, a leader among local or national or tribal leaders. And so this is, he's saying this, that this term, power of the air, refers to his sphere of influence. And it was quite known that in that time of Judaism in the first century, that the air spoke as the domain of Satan. And they would actually rule the air in which the ancient world would believe that there's an intermediate sphere between earth and heaven. And in this intermediate realm, which to be very careful, uh, the power of the prince of the air is only on the lower side, which talks about um, just his uh, position. But it's talking about that these are the world rulers of this darkness um, who are ruling over an area that we don't even see. And most likely, maybe for some of us, we do not sense. But it is real. And the point is, 
very similar to Bob's, is when you engage in simple things like prayer, you are going to be assaulted by these unseen powers in darkness, of darkness, and you will be attacked. And this is compelling when you think about the overall theme and you zoom back to Ephesians. Now Christ is on a mission to unite a divided creation, heaven and earth, through a new community. And Paul is picturing that we, we who were uh, formerly lost in, apart from Christ were under the authority of the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were captive by things that you didn't even know about. <laughs> and they had such a power to be uh, over us in our lostness that we were just powerful just to give in to the enemy without as much of a fight. So we had a sinful environment, the age of this world. We had a powerful opponent, the prince of the power of the air. And we have the last evil influence, which is our flesh, which is simply, you know, the adage of you do what you want to do, right? Or you do you. Um, this natural inclination of our own will. And it's just our, it's just our desires, and we are held captives by the desires of our flesh. Paul said it best when he said, the things that I do want to do, I don't do, and the things I want to do, I do do. <laughs> and he's just speaking to that, that we are held captive by our anger and by our rage and our dissension and our selfish ambition and, and our lust for power, um, as well as just being chained by the gods of this world, pornography and depression and anxiety and rage. And while these things are prevalent in today's society, these things control us. And so you can see Paul, he's not saying, well, you know, we're all kind of good. I'm not really such a bad person. I just do a few wrong things. I make mistakes. He's giving a death blow. He's saying, you are children Look in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God's masterpiece, his creation, was ruined because we were under captive, the worlds of the enemy and the flesh, and his, and, and his creation was ruined. Y'all, we were children of of wrath. And God's wrath and love are not mutually exclusive as we're going to see in this passage. Um, that God in his wrath, yet he's also righteous and he cannot stand idly by when his people turn against him. But you know, when you think about it, this is a pretty bleak outlook. And so before you move on, um, will you just think for a moment of your lostness before and if you have found Christ. And, and, and if you are in a place where you've not even started a journey with Jesus, know and, and recognize that that's, we're, we're talking about the very badness of our sin, that there's nobody that can save us when we were lost. And so let it fully settle in your heart that you were dead and you were lost. You were under judgment. Yet there is hope. <laughs> there is hope. As one professor, Clint Arnold, comments, and he says this, in light of the distressing plight humanity faces because of the powerful chains of their slavery, 
the but God of this next paragraph shines a brilliant ray of hope. The God of creation is not only just, but he is merciful exceedingly so. Let's read that in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the, immeasurably, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. <laughs> in the midst of our deadness and our ruin, our rebellion, and our surrendering to the flesh, the artist, but he is the actor. He's not someone who just bemoans his lost creation and I wish, I wish that my creation would just turn out and get better. But he is the one who can restore the painting and restore the masterpiece to its former glory. And then some. While we're deserving his wrath, God but God. Aren't those two amazing words that just sums up the gospel? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Say it with me. But God. Say that with me again. <laughs> but God. Mm. Fill that to the depths of your heart. You know, sometimes the best times in, wh in which you receive God's love is when you don't expect it. And if you are reading this text, if you are drawn in, if you are on that boat, you would not expect deliverance. But God is a spontaneous God. And a lot of times his mercy shows up when you least expect it. That's the richness here. Um, it's regularly linked up with his love and his grace and compassion. Exodus 25 through 6, 34, 6 through 7. The Lord is gracious and slow to anger. And, and so the richness also corresponds to its breadth, that this is not just to the Jew, but this is also extended to the Gentile. If you look at it in verse 5, he shifts from you to the pronoun us. Paul is drawing us in, and he's saying that his mercy, as he's been so rich to Israel in their time of covenant failure, time after time after time again, that his mercy is so rich and so powerful that it extends to all of us. We're so quickly forgetful of that. Paul reminds us as if we've forgotten, if we even, he says, even if we were dead in our trespasses, to tee up what the artist did. He made us alive in Christ. And those two, there's two words that describe um, uh, what this looked like to make us alive. And what we see in this is that Jesus was, number one, he was raised, and number two, he was seated. He was raised and he was seated in the heavenly places, 
and get this now, to unseat um, the, and defeat, to unseat and defeat the evil influences that held us in bondage, namely the world, the devil, and the flesh. And this is what blows my mind because it's unfortunate that there's section breaks and there's divisions um, from chapter one and chapter two. Y'all, chapter one is not a uh, part of the inerrant scriptures, uh, the break divisions and the chapters and the verses. What you've got to see here is that, yeah, there is a shift in chapter two, verse one, but really chapter two, one through 10 is a continuation of the paragraph in chapter one. And the idea is this, if God has worked in Christ Jesus to raise him from the dead and to seat him in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, and if we are uniting with Christ through faith, we are also raised with Christ and seated with Christ. In other words, we are given the privileges that Christ himself enjoys, and it's like we're sitting right next to Jesus on an iron deck chair, and we're seated in the heavenlies, enjoying rule and reign and joy in his presence. Look back in Ephesians 1.20. It says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And that's in direct parallel to verse six and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You recognize this parallel that Paul is saying as Christ is raised and seated, we are united with Christ in faith. We also unite with him in being raised and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, maybe we're not an Aaron Deck chair. <laughs> maybe we're not just zipping lemonade or something, but we're gonna talk about that, what, what God has for us. But picture that we are given the freedom, this resurrection, but also that we are free in Christ. This must have been spoken to the Ephesians who were slaves to the world. They are slaves to this Roman Empire who had just this power and this dominations on them and, and just commanded them to worship emperors as the gods and that demanded cold sacrifice and performances. And Paul is saying that you are raised and seated in the heavenly place of Christ and, and you are above that. You are more than conquerors in Christ. Ephesus was the occultic center of the world. They were thought higher and power, spiritual, magical powers. They were able to unlock the blessings in their life. Yet through Christ, there is none of that. Christ is on his throne and he is unchanged and, and unchained and, and he has unchained us and he has freed us from that bondage. And lastly, we're free from the flesh. And we're, God in Christ has released us to, in a new way to live in the freedom of his Holy Spirit. And we're rescued from this idea that we have to perform more enough, uh, more, we have to perform enough, or that we have to do more in order to earn God's um, approval or favor or love. That's all destroyed in this book of Ephesians. He's saying, there is more for you than you ever realized. And by Jesus' performance, that is enough. And he loves you. You don't have to put up yourself by your bootstraps to try to earn God's favor and smile. And he is already in Christ, smiling on you. And this is just starts with grace, that everything that we are rescued from is out of the sheer grace of God. 
And that grace is the sheer motivation for everything God has done for us. Rich grace motivated the Father to choose us and to elect us out of the foundations of the world. Grace motivated us, uh, Jesus, to redeem us. Grace motivated the Spirit of God to live in us as a seal of our inheritance. And grace motivates us to live in this grace, not just for our own salvation, but from here on out. And practically, that just means that when you as believers are hit with um, spiritual attack, you can command and silence by the authority in Christ. You can silence the world and the flesh and the enemy in Christ. You do not have to live under bondage, but you live under grace. By Christ, he has overcome the world, and you also share in that authority. You have more authority um, um, than we think we do. You have the ability to put on and put off, put on Christ and put off death and sin, and you don't need to be mastered by that anymore. Amen? You are seated in Christ. You are in a seat. <laughs> you, salvation is done because Christ has already done it for you. You are living in victory. Believer, friend, fellow brother or sister in Christ, you have true authority. You are, and it's as good as done. Paul says here, he's, he's framing it as this is happening now. He has made us alive together with Christ. And in other words, you share in that power now. In Believer, um, I was so listening to the Asbury uh, revival and I was just listening to one of the testimonies. One, one of the ones that would grip me was of this student who had battled a long battle of depression. And then she gave this testimony that as she was overcome by the Holy Spirit and by the power of God, that the Lord was gonna heal her depression. And she surrendered of that, gave it up to the Lord and testified that day that her depression was gone. <laughs> Praise God. And she was freed because you can tell because other students and faculty, and I just noticed, I don't even know her, but you could just see the immediate changes in her face. There was a countenance, they told her, that was different about you because she didn't remember that Jesus now lives in her. She remembered that Jesus already freed her and is living in her. So believer, there is no sin this side of heaven that you do not have victory over. It doesn't mean it's just gonna you know, be gone in a one-time prayer. But Jesus died and raised and seated to give you power for today. If you are struggling with guilt and shame, you can silence that in the name of Jesus. If you are dealing with depression and anxiety, you can defeat it. And when the temptations from the world are so great that you can't handle it, you have the power of Christ and the power of community people who are broken just like you to come and encourage you, cast that burden on Christ and help you to defeat it. And I think this is all to show the depths of the riches of grace in the coming ages so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, I think he allows us to be able to silence the flesh, the enemy, and the world so that we, one day, as we're rehearsing the gospel, we can see, and one day, we'll see the divine, the divine IMAX theater of what actually happened. The coming ages speak of eternity. 
and it's actually ages, so it's talking about ages to ages, just, just really emphasizing the fact that this is going on forever. And um, somebody in discipleship groups was, we were pondering this, and somebody just gave this idea that this is going to, we're going to see God's grace not only in our own lives, but we're going to see how our every link and every chain of everything that we've done also affected the salvation of others. It's kind of like an endless cause and effect where we'll see everything that led up to our salvation, and then we're also not going to just see that, but we're going to see how our lives affected people's lives for God's glory and their good, whether it's, it's people being saved, whether it's them being built up, whether them getting an encouraging word or being transformed. And I think we're going to be able to see an eternal movie that's dedicated to God's grace and has restored his creation. It'll be like chosen, but even better. <laughs> It'll be so amazing. Uh, maybe like the Jesus movement movie that just came out. Um, and, um, and so I think the very last part is I want to just speak on this, that God does not have the power just to restore creation, but he's going to realize it in a way that goes beyond our imaginations. Verse 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, I don't think anybody looks at the paintings that we just saw and think about, oh, how amazing that muse was that just, you know, posed for that painting. Or, wow, look at that canvas. <laughs> look at that texture. Everyone knows that the single most important thing on that painting is the name of the artist. And in the same way, the most important thing about you is that salvation is signed by God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of our salvation is grounded in the kindness of God, and we can take no credit of our own. As Charles Swindoll wrote, until we finally give up any notion of any entitlement, contribution, or partnership in salvation, we will never truly appreciate the work that Christ has done for us and is doing in us. And I think this goes back to the next point, that we are God's workmanship. Once we come to, to grips with the fact that we cannot contribute anything to our salvation, then we can interpret verse 10, because we do have a huge part to play. God, yes, is a sovereign artist. Every brushstroke is out of the creator's inkwell of his mercy. But it doesn't change the fact that human responsibility is so important. God has saved us, not by our own good works, but by his grace, meaning that he redeemed us for good works, not by good works. But we need to retain this balance. Um, one person put it this way, no one more wholeheartedly than Paul repudiated good works as a grounds of salvation. No one more wholeheartedly insisted on good works as the fruit of salvation. We are his workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece. In the Greek, that word is poema, which is where we get the word poem. And we shall now show that we are his workmanship by the works which we perform. And I think we are moving masterpieces for the creator. And we're not just looking at paintings that are static. We are designed for action. It's like a... We're moving masterpieces for the glory of our God. 
Um, we got to go to, during my sabbatical, we got to go to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Well, my, my wife and my daughter love the Renaissance paintings and Degas and Manet and all those. Uh, my son, on the other hand, loved the modern and contemporary art. And by far, we like this work called um, by a Venezuelan artist by the name of uh, Jesus Rafael Soto. And we really loved particularly his large-scale kinetic sculptures. And he would just use these scrap metal of iron, steel, metal pipes, PVCs or whatever, what have you, and use it to create illusions that these pieces were actually moving. And in the piece that we actually saw um, is as you, as you move past this, um, this, this uh, kinetic sculpture, it almost as if you look at these, all these lines and they started moving as if they were gears. And the point was that kinetic sculpture um, has this impression that, that his art is inseparable from the viewer. It can only stand completed in the illusion perceived by the mind as a result of observing that piece. And while this example kind of falls short because that it's, we're not living illusory lives, how much greater is that God has created us for salvation and yet he has given us a real purpose and a real uh, calling to show off the master creator by our kinetic works. And I remember seeing this is that our good works are kinetic, that they are rooted in the grace of God, but they are meant to be kinetic to show off the kindness of Jesus. And that's what's saying is that all of our work, whether it's our vocational work or even work of growing our gardens or painting a painting or performing an art or playing a musical instrument or shepherding our kids or showing kindness to a patient that has been given a cancer diagnosis or reading a bedtime prayer for our children or delivering a bite to a child that needs one. All these are good works that testify and show off the fact that God not only values us as his workmanship, but he values those good works. And he's created us with real purpose. And he's constantly cultivating these parts in our lives and saying, I've created you, not just to be saved, but to be transformed and released to do what God wants you to do. And the best analogy that I can think of is that it's kind of like um, we, just, we just made up some raised garden beds in our backyard. And while it could be really tempting to just say, look at these garden beds and say, I did it, or we did it. Actually, it's most of my kids that did it. <laughs> um, it's just so much more fun to be able to grow things and to cultivate it. We're not looking at it as a static thing that's just going to stay the same forever, but rather our lives are like the soil, and we are constantly cultivating the soil of our good works that are produced and gospel-saturated. And God is saying to us, you are my garden, and I want, I've chosen you, and I have called you to bear fruit. Jesus tells us, you did not choose chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit shall abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We are not like the paintings in the Isabel Gardner Museum waiting for the picture to only be returned. We are moving masterpieces for the glory of the master artist. We've been ruined, but we've been restored 
And we're being realized now as we're participating as viewers and we are showing off the kindness of the creator artist who has made us. And now the kingdom of God is being realized through you. It's already there. But as you walk it out in the works that God has prepared you beforehand, you are storytelling, sculpting, performing the kingdom for the glory of God. I just want to invite the prayer team and the worship team to come up as we think about this. I'd like you to just to close your eyes and just spend some time saying, God, move me again. If you've been just disillusioned or cold to the gospel, just like Christ in the storm, will you just enter in, back into your lostness without Christ? Will you just spend some time meditating on the power of the artist coming in and raising up a ruined creation and raising you up? And will you just thank Jesus for his kindness that he showed you? And then secondly, will you just meditate and ask the Lord, God, if I am a moving masterpiece to show you off, what are you calling me to? meditating and reflecting on that, sitting on the goodness of God and at the same time asking, Lord, where are you? If you've called me to good works and you've rescued me out of the ruin and I'm your workmanship, how do you want me to move? Is there a person in suffering that I need to reach out to? Is there people struck with a death sentence that you need to reach out to. your heart. Lord, maybe we've suffered with a lot of self-hate and we don't think that we are truly your workmanship. Lord, help us to believe that we are your masterpiece. We're your poem. You love us and call us as your own. God, challenge us, oh God, to step out of our comfort zones and to move where you want us to go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Continue to meditate, worship, 